Uh, a couple of years ago, I had the desire to learn how to play the guitar and um, started taking some online lessons, and I would sit in our living room and play while our sons kind of played. Uh, there were the toys in the living room. And uh, started getting a little bit of confidence, like, like I was getting pretty good, as I could play like two chords in half a song. Um, and I was playing for a while and, and thought I was doing pretty good until my son, uh, who was about four at the time, walked up to me and he stuck his hand on the guitar, uh, muting the sound, and said, Dad, you're hurting my ears. <laughs> and that was humbling enough. Uh, out of the mouths of babes. <laughs> Uh, sometimes learning new things can be hard, can it not? And I've, I've learned that learning new things can be hard, but I've also learned that uh, learning new things about familiar things can also be really hard. There's that old adage, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And uh, in life, there's many things that become familiar to us. And even in the Christian life, there are things that become familiar to us, things that we do over and over again that are good things. Uh, we, we study our Bible, we meditate, we meet in community, we, we pray. Um, but sometimes we can get in old habits or even bad habits, things that become familiar to us. And so we should be learning and growing in the Christian life. Peter, for instance, commanded Christians to grow in the grace and knowledge that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we should be people who are learning and growing. And a number of years ago, I was introduced to this program called Masterclass. I'm not sure if anybody's heard of Masterclass before, but you can sign up to take a class from somebody that's like world-renowned in a certain skill. Like you can learn how to shoot a basketball from Steph Curry. Uh, you can learn how to write a book from John Grisham or things like that. And so the question for you is, if you had the opportunity to, to enroll in the Masterclass of your choice, what topic would you study and who would you study under? Maybe to add a little wrinkle or twist, if you could study under anybody in history, who would you study under? Like maybe you could learn music from Mozart. But what would be the subject and who would be the teacher of that course? And, and as Christians, there should be some things that we're especially concerned about, things that we should be growing in, and even things that are familiar to us. Um, I was reminded even this morning, but was told recently that as a church, you're engaging 40 days of prayer um, and so as Christians, we should be committed to prayer. That's a beautiful thing. I think thriving Christians are praying Christians. The question is, are we growing in our prayer life? Have you ever gotten in a rut in your prayer life where you like pray the same old things about the same old things and prayer becomes kind of lifeless or boring? And the question is, are we growing in our prayer life? And so if you were to, say, take a master class on prayer, who would be the ultimate teacher for a class on prayer? It's really a safe answer in church. And she's, it's like that Sunday school joke. Sunday school teacher says, okay, I'm going to describe something to you. You tell me what it is. It's, it's brown. It's fluffy. It climbs up in tree, trees and has a long tail. And the kid goes, sounds like a squirrel, but it's got to be Jesus. <laughs> so it's always your safe answer in church. Um, but Jesus, if you could take a master class on prayer, wouldn't the ultimate teacher be Jesus? In fact, you read the gospel accounts. In Luke's gospel account, it tells us that, that Jesus had gone off into, to, to pray. His disciples had watched him go out to pray. They had listened to him pray. And then finally, they, they went up to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us what? To pray. They knew Jesus was the expert prayer, and they wanted to learn from the expert. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And then Jesus gave them his master class. And the beautiful thing for us is it's been preserved for us. We don't have the video recording. Uh, but we have the Word of God that has preserved for us Jesus' master class on prayer. And so we have Luke's gospel account that has the Lord's Prayer and also in Matthew chapter 6. And there's slight variation in these two prayers, which 
reminds us that this is a template. This is a model. And you can pray the Lord's Prayer word for word, and there's value in that. But the fact that there's slight variation difference between these two prayers also reminds us that these, this is a template. This is a model to teach us how to pray. And so what I'd like to do today, especially as a church, as you're looking to engage in 40 days of prayer and committing to be a people of prayer, how fitting would it be to really give ourselves to Jesus' master class on prayer. So if you have a Bible, open up with me to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll consider Jesus' master class teaching on the topic of prayer. Before we dive into Jesus' teaching, I'd like to open us with a word of prayer, and then we will dive in. Father, we thank you that you are who you are. You are God, you are King, you are the one who rules and reigns, and we want to be a people who trust you. We recognize the beautiful gift of prayer to come before you and to cast our cares upon you, to pray for your glory, your kingdom, your rule, your reign, and also to bring our own needs and petitions before you. You're the one who cares for us, and you're the one who calls us to cast our cares upon you. You instruct us to even bring our daily needs before you. And so we thank you that you are our almighty and caring Father. And as we learn about prayer, as we engage, Lord, this text, we ask that you would guide our hearts and our minds in doing so. And we give you thanks in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. And so this is in the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. In this text, Matthew 6, or right smack dab in the middle in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this section, this kind of subsection, is a section in which uh, Jesus is talking about some of the core aspects of piety. And so the first part of Matthew chapter 6, he talks about the practice of giving to the needy. And then this section we'll look at, he's talking about prayer. And then after that, he talks about the discipline of fasting. And so Jesus is talking about kind of core spirituality in this aspect of the Sermon on the Mount. And before diving into instructions about how to pray, uh, Jesus gives some instructions on how not to pray. And those instructions are found here in the first part of Matthew chapter 6, starting verse 5, going through verse 8. So we have a six-part outline, which I know is kind of taboo for a Baptist preacher. Um, but we have six points this morning. The first, first point is instruction on how not to pray, which I believe is found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 8. And then after that, Jesus, I believe, is going to give us at least five key principles and truths to learn as it relates to how to pray. But let's start with the first one, starting in verse 5 through 8. We'll read the text, and we'll consider what Jesus has to teach us in this part of the text. Matthew 6, 5 through 8. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, not the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you, go, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. But when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So the first principle take away from Jesus' teaching here on prayer is that we should not pray with vain motives or empty words. We should not pray with vain motives or empty words. And the key term found in verse 5 is hypocrites. A hypocrite is somebody who puts on a show or a mask as like an actor or a pretender. And I think there's somewhat of a false assumption many times in terms of what a hypocrite is. Sometimes we have the false assumption that hypocrisy is doing something contrary to what you feel. Uh, say, for instance, though, a uh, spouse doesn't really feel like loving their spouse. Is it a good thing if they still love their spouse? 
It's not a trick question. <laughs> is that still a good thing? That's not hypocrisy, is it? If a, if a spouse doesn't feel like loving their spouse, but they love their spouse, that's not hypocrisy. That's faithfulness. And so to do the right thing when you don't feel like doing the right thing is actually faithfulness. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is to say you're committed to one thing, but then doing the opposite. And here as it relates to spirituality, uh, it's to say that you're committed to God's glory, but actually living for yourself. And that's really what the hypocrites were practicing. They were trying to be pious, but they loved to stand on the street corners and pray to be seen by others. So they were living for themselves while they were trying to make a show that they were all into God. They just say that they loved to pray to be seen by others. And so we should not pray with vain motives. Uh, And Jesus gives counsel. Do not be like them. Uh, Elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus refers to these hypocrites or these religious leaders and he refers to them as like blind guides leading the blind. And so essentially, don't follow their example. Be careful who you follow. And um, when I've flown before, I have this like very irrational tendency uh, to look in the cockpit before I board the plane to make sure that I get a sense the pilots really know what they're doing. And I'm not really sure what I'm expecting to see. Uh, like if they're in there playing checkers, like, okay, I probably should turn around uh, and go somewhere else. Uh, but maybe you have that tendency as well. Like, we want to know if we're being led somewhere, we're being led by somebody who's competent and knows what they're doing. In many respects, Jesus is saying here, do not be like them. Do not follow the, the patterns or the practices of the hypocrites. But that also shines a spotlight on our own hearts. Are, are we paying attention to the hypocrisy that easily can flare up in our own hearts? We all have a tendency towards hypocrisy. And so in many respects, Jesus is reminding us to guard our own hearts, to be mindful of these tendencies in our hearts. The fallen human heart is prone to turn healthy and even godly spiritual practices into vain and ungodly means of exalting self. And so we need to guard our hearts against those dynamics and realities. But Jesus gives a positive reality as well, and a positive dynamic as to why we should not pray like the hypocrites. He says, Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And so I'm not sure the last time was when you were sent to your room. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's sending us to our room. And so uh, public vanity is overcome by a secret spirituality of practicing a spirituality before the Father, recognizing he sees and knows all. He's the rewarder of those who seek him. And so we don't have to pray for the ear of others. We don't have to pray for the eye of others. We can pray knowing that we have a Father in heaven who sees and knows all and is rewarder of those who seek after him. And so secret spirituality is the remedy to public vanity. So we should not pray with vain motives. But also, Jesus goes on in verse 7 and 8 to remind us that we also should not pray with empty words. His counsel in verse 5 and 6 is largely to the religious. In verse 7 and 8, it's largely to the irreligious. Notice again the key term in verse 7 is Gentiles. Some translations have it as pagans, which I think is helpful to draw the the meaning of the sense of the term. Uh, It's not necessarily like nationality or location. It's about way of life. Pagans, those who are contrary to God in his ways, living in a worldly manner. And so he said, don't live like the pagans or the Gentiles who heap up these empty phrases thinking that they can basically tire God out with their many words. Have you ever fallen into that rut? Again, pray the same thing over and over. Like, if I just kind of keep repeating this to God, then he'll finally hear me and answer me. And that's, in many respects, what Jesus is getting at here, not to pray with empty words. We're to be perseverant in our prayers, but not to be empty in our prayers. We're to give thoughtfulness to our prayers. And there's an interesting case study here in the scriptures about a contrast between praying with empty words and praying, what we say, with substantive simplicity. Uh, think of Elijah in the prophets of Baal. And you have this showdown. And the prophets of Baal are, are chanting for basically the entirety of the day. 
and they're, they're slashing themselves. They're trying to do everything they can to get Baal's attention, but to no avail. Uh, Baal doesn't listen, and, and Elijah starts to mock uh, the prophets of Baal, and uh, like, why isn't Baal listening to you? And they keep chanting. They basically pass out from exhaustion, and Baal doesn't respond. But then Elijah does the opposite. He actually stacks the cards against himself. He waters the sacrifice, and he has a very simple but substantive prayer that God answers, and he rains down fire from heaven. And it's, it's that contrast that should remind us how we ought to pray. We ought to pray with substance of simplicity. God hears us, and we give thoughtfulness to our prayers, but trust that he is the God who hears and knows and is the rewarder of those who seek after him. And so Jesus' opening instructions here remind us that we should not pray with vain motives or empty words, but with substantive simplicity. So this is how we ought not to pray. But then this leads into instructions how we are to pray. Jesus then leads into the model prayer, or the Lord's Prayer, which is familiar for many of us. Uh, Very helpful to memorize, to provide for a template model for prayer. And you can pray through this word for word, but these, each of these petitions gives us insight and instructions as to how we ought to pray. And I have five insights from the text here that I want to glean. But before we consider instructions or principles, let's read the Lord's Prayer together, or, or read, read the Lord's Prayer in its entirety, and then we'll come back and consider um, principles one at a time. So Jesus continues, verse 9, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so number two in your notes, the first way to pray, uh, pray with awe and intimacy. And we get that from verse nine. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. And there's this juxtaposition. Our Father in heaven. It's God who is near. He is our Father, the one who loves us and cares for us. And he's also our Father in heaven, the one who rules and reigns over all. He is Lord of all lords, King of all kings. He's the one who rules and reigns over all of creation. And so he's the God who knows us and cares for us, and we can draw near with, to him with intimacy. And he's also the King who rules and reigns over all, and we should have an awe in terms of the greatness of who he is. Now, Jewish tradition had a very high reverence for the name of God. In fact, some instances the name of God was used wrongly, or in some instances even used at all, there was a severe consequence, sometimes even being death. And so the question being, how could, from a Jewish standpoint, how can then Jesus then counsel his disciples to pray to God as our Father? And the point being is that this prayer is really a summary of the gospel of what Jesus has made available through his own person and work. Jesus Christ came to this earth to obliterate this, the, the dividing wall between us and God. He's the one who lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death on the cross, who rose from the grave and ascended into heaven so that we now can call upon God as Abba, Father. And by faith, he cleanses us of our sins and gives us new life. And so to begin this prayer, it's really a, a starting point in the gospel that Jesus Christ has made, paved the way for a newness of life and a rightness with God, and to know him as our Father. So adoption into the family of God is central to the gospel and central to prayer. Um, we've been, uh, my wife and I have been licensed for about a year and a half or so now in, li- in foster care and adoption, uh, hopes to adopt someday. And we've been having multiple conversations with our boys to kind of help them understand what adoption is. 
And um, our oldest son, not too long ago, told us, you know, I'm so excited for us to adoptigate a child. <laughs> and so he's super excited about adoptigation, uh, whatever it is. Um, but we've been adoptigated into the family of God as Christians. Uh, we're, we're his. And um, that's central to the Christian life. That's central to our understanding of the gospel. Um, to be in Christ is to be in the family of God, to be adopted into the family of God. So now we cry out to God as our Father. And God is, Jesus is grounding his disciples in that reality when they pray. Our Father in heaven. So we begin prayer from that position. And, and so we, we need to be a people who recognize the, the wonder of God's love for us. That's really how we begin prayer, is recognizing the love of the Father. And um, I know recently you guys have been going through a catechism here. And um, I've tried to have catechism questions and answers for our boys as they've gotten older. And uh, one that I've tried to just keep before them on a regular basis to remind them of God's love. I'll ask them, I said, boys, um, do you know how much I love you? And they'll say, so much. And then I'll say, do you know how much God loves you? And they'll say, immeasurably. I, I love them so much, but God's love for them is infinitely higher, immeasurably greater than my love for them. And one of the things I want them to know early on and growing up is that they have a God in heaven who loves them beyond what they could ever fully imagine. And I think that's, in many ways, what Jesus is grounding us in here. Our Father in heaven. We have a Father in heaven who loves us beyond what we could ever fully comprehend. And so we begin prayer in this relationship of intimacy with our Father. It's the controlling truth that should guide all of our prayers. And so God is near as Father, but He's also high above us. He's transcendent in heaven, which implies that we should pray with awe in terms of the grandness and the greatness of who God is. Not too long ago, my wife and I had the privilege of going to a Rocky Mountain National Park for our 10-year wedding anniversary, and uh, just glorious, beautiful there. Uh, but the day we got in, uh, we were kind of processing a lot of life stuff. We have a son who's dealing with some pretty intense medical stuff and some other just kind of heavy stuff that was happening at the time. And when we got there, we were hoping that we could kind of set it aside um, but we found ourselves still kind of processing that. And we both had cried that night, just kind of processing the brokenness of life, the heaviness of life. And we went to bed, and then we woke up the next morning to go on our first hike. And uh, we went, for those familiar with um, Rocky Mountain National Park on the eastern side, there's Bear Lake. And it's this very crystal clear lake. You have trees surrounding it and mountains cascading in the background. And uh, it's really a wow sight. We got there as the sun was rising. And so you have the sunlight kind of glistening off this crystal clear lake with mountains in the background. We both started weeping at this sight. And I'm not that sobby of a person. Like, I don't cry that often. But we cried the night before with brokenness of the world. But we cried that morning not because the world's so broken, but because God is so great and so beautiful. And in awe of the wonder of who he is. This is our God. He spoke this into existence. And we need that, do we not? To be reminded of the grandness and the bigness and the beauty of God. And so when we pray, our Father in heaven, it's to be grounded in that reality, that we have a God who is worthy of awe. We have a God who is grand and beautiful and wonderful beyond what we could ever fully comprehend. He is good, he is grand, he is glorious, and he is the one to whom we pray. And so it's easier to pray when we recognize that God is grand and good. And that's really how Jesus begins the model prayer, our Father in heaven. And it's that reality then that leads to the first petition hallowed be your name. The term translated hallowed is translated elsewhere as holy, um, that God's name would be holy. In, a, in reference to God's name, 
the name of God would be referring to all that God is. His character, his ways, his perfection. Uh, in scripture, the name of a person was oftentimes tethered to what that person accomplished or what they did, their activity. Think of Jesus, for instance. His name, he was given the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sin. And likewise, the name of God refers, references all that God is. And so to hallow God's name would be to magnify, to shine a spotlight on the brilliance and the beauty and the wonder of who God is. All that he is, his character, his ways, his perfection. And uh, Peter, for instance, used the same term translated here as hallowed in his uh, letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, when he writes, to, commands believers to revere Christ as Lord. That God would be magnified. Christ would be exalted. And that's really the spirit of this prayer. That God's name, who God is, would be magnified. That we would see him accurately for who he is. This is priority number one for believers. That, that God would be seen accurately. God would be magnified. God would be exalted. He'd be seen as beautiful and great and wonderful as he is. So if we want to live vibrant lives, then hallowed be your name needs to be the anthem of our lives. We are to pray with awe and intimacy. But that leads then to verse 10. And we are to pray with a kingdom mind. Verse 10 says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And so there's reference here to the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is where God rules as king. And really the introduction to the kingdom of God and the theme of the kingdom of God is in the very beginning of Scripture's story. You think about the beginning of Scripture's story and how the Bible story begins. Could there really be a bigger introduction to any story than the story of the Bible? Think how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Could there be a larger intro to any story? Like I know the, the intro for Star Wars is pretty epic. But, like, that intro to the scripture story, it could not be surpassed, could not be bigger. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it really emphasized that God is the one who rules, God is the one who reigns, God is the one who's in charge. And it really introduces us to the theme of kingdom. God is king, God rules, God reigns. And what we find in scripture story, as the story progresses, is that God entrusts that kingdom rule to Adam. He more or less hands a scepter over to Adam. But how does Adam do with kingdom rule? Not so hot, right? He was given a simple instruction, a no, to don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And how did he do on that? Uh, he said, nay, nay, I'm going to do it my own way. And he re- resisted God's instruction, and he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We, when we're introduced to Genesis chapter 3, uh, when I was in elementary school, we still had chalkboards at the time. And I even had a teacher that could do the nails down the chalkboard thing. You, know, like, you, like, like the, uh, you get like to <laughs> shock up your back, like when you hear that sound. But when you get to Genesis chapter 3, like that's the sound you probably should be hearing, like nails down the chalkboard. Um, but what we find from that dynamic when the serpent enters the scene is that it's kingdom's intention. It's not a dualism because we know that God's the one who's in charge and will ultimately bring his kingdom to bear in fullness. But there's a kingdom of darkness that's opposed to the kingdom of light. And so that's really the story. As the story progresses, we have this fallen, have Adam who fell in his kingdom responsibilities, uh, but we're looking for the last Adam. We're looking for the righteous Adam, the one who would take the scepter and rule righteously. And when Jesus comes, there's this great kingdom expectation as to what this would look like, but the expectations were contrary to what Jesus actually came to do. Because God's people were looking for somebody to deliver them from Rome. They're looking for a sword or a tank to deliver God's people. But Jesus came bearing a towel. And ultimately bearing a cross. Because the larger problem 
And the bigger problem, the true problem, was the problem of sin in our hearts. And Jesus came to deliver us from that problem, which indicates what it means for the kingdom to go forth. For the kingdom to advance means that the gospel takes root in the human heart. And so when we pray something like this, your kingdom come, we're praying for the gospel to advance in others' hearts, in our hearts as well. And Paul prayed that way, similarly in that way. And you have a text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We have prayers like this in the New Testament. Paul prayed, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Paul prayed for the advance of the gospel, the advance of the word of God. And that, in many respects, that's his kingdom prayer. Um, that the kingdom of God would go forth, that the kingdom of God would come, that the kingdom of God would advance in the hearts and lives of others. And so when we pray for God's kingdom to advance, it's that God's kingdom would take root in others' hearts and our hearts as well, which also then connects with the next petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we're going to pray that God's kingdom would come, then it also implies that we're going to submit ourselves to God's kingdom instructions, which you think about the context of the Lord's Prayer here in Matthew chapter 6. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus gave some pretty crazy instructions, uh, like forgiving, uh, turning the other cheek, uh, walking the extra mile, not worrying, and things like that. And, and Jesus called his disciples to live a certain sort of life. And so we're going to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. It means that we're going to submit ourselves to these sort of instructions. Uh, D.A. Carson, in his commentary on this prayer, uh, had the following to say. So if my heart hunger is that God's will be done, then praying this prayer is also my pledge that so help me God, by his grace I will do his will as much as I know it. And so to truly pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, means that we're going to submit ourselves to God's word and seek to be faithful to God's word. To make to commit to doing what God wants even when it hurts. And so the safest yet most dangerous prayer we could ever pray is this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This though leads then to verse 11 and how we are to pray with humble hands. Verse 11, Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. A helpful framework to understand the movement in the Lord's Prayer Verses 8 through 10, in many respects, are instructions for us to pray for God's glory. And then verse 11 through 13 are instructions for us to pray for our good. God is concerned for us to pray for his glory and for our own good. It's both and, not either or. And Jesus has given us instructions how to pray for God's glory, and he gives us instructions here how to pray for our good. And in verse 11, Jesus' instruction, give us this day our daily bread. The, the imperative give, the petition give, reminds us that life is a gift. Uh, James writes, for instance, every good and every perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. And so all of life is gift, and so all of life should be lived with this humble posture before the Lord. He is the God who gives every good gift. But it also reminds us that we are utterly dependent upon him, and he's the one who gives us daily provision. And the shift from praying for God's glory to praying for our good has led some to believe that the reference here to bread is some sort of spiritual reference, like the Word of God or Jesus as the bread of life. But when Scripture says bread here, it most likely means bread. (laughs) Earlier, for instance, in Matthew chapter 4, Satan tempted Jesus to turn stones into bread. And then even later, just a few chapters after this, Jesus took a boy's Lunchable and he transformed it into a lot of what? A lot of bread. (laughs) 
And so it's physical bread, Matthew 4, Matthew 7, Matthew 11. And so it's very likely that this is a reference to actual physical bread. Jesus commanded us to, to pray for daily need, daily provision of bread. And, and it's helpful uh, to recognize one, one catechism puts it, this is praying for a competent portion in life. What we need for the day, daily provision. And uh, so it's not praying for your daily cupcake. It's also not praying for your daily crouton. It's praying for daily bread. What you really need for the day. What do you need for the day? Bring that request before the Lord. And in our culture, when we have food in the refrigerators or cupboards, uh, we may be tempted to pass over this petition, but regularly praying daily, this petition reminds us that we are utterly and completely dependent upon the Lord. Day laborers in time of Jesus would have been aware of that, but we're just as dependent upon the Lord for daily provision. So Jesus teaches us to pray this every day. Give us this day our daily bread. We have three boys at home, uh, six, four, and two, and um, I have a little bit of a sweet tooth, so I like to wander in our kitchen occasionally for treats, and um, our, my boys will follow me like little ducklings into the kitchen because I know I'm going to get a snack. Um, but our youngest son in particular uh, loves treats, and uh, if he knows I'm in the kitchen getting something, he'll walk up to me and put his hand out, and he goes, peace, <laughs> peace, <laughs> peace. And I think in some respects that's the posture that we were to come before God with here, give us this day our daily bread. We have a good, good father who's gracious and has lavished us with every good gift. And we're to come before him with the heart of a child, recognizing that God is God who graciously provides. So we pray with humble hands. We also pray with a tender heart, number 5, verse 12. I pray with a humble heart. Instruction, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The previous verse makes clear that we're to pray for our bodies, but we especially need pardon for our souls, which is made clear here in verse 12. Matthew Henry noted that if we pray for daily bread without experiencing the forgiveness of sins, then the gift of daily bread merely fattens us for the slaughter. First John, though, reminds us of God's grace and mercy to forgive us of our sins. First John 1 John 1.9 reminds us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we have a God who is merciful and gracious, cleansing us of our sin. And so this rhythm of life that Jesus gives us here in this temple prayer reminds us that we have a God who is gracious. So it reminds us of the graciousness of God and also the ugliness of sin. We can bring our sin before him, and God is a God who is gracious and merciful to cleanse us of our sin and give us new life. And so again, this reminds us of the importance of keeping the heart, of guarding the heart. Proverbs 4.23, for instance, Reminds us that we are to guard our hearts for it is the what? It's the wellspring of life. All the issues of life flow from the heart. And I think in many respects, Jesus' instructions here to, to pray daily that God would forgive us our debts is this daily bringing our hearts before him, assessing our hearts, and being honest before the Lord of shortcomings. But there's also accountability built into this prayer. If you haven't caught that, notice the language of the text. Forgive us our debts as we what? Forgive others. There's an accountability built in this. I think what's really being said there, God, forgive me just as I have forgiven others. Has, have there been times in your life that that might be difficult to pray? God, treat me just like I've treated other people. So if you ever struggle with bitterness or lack of forgiveness, it might be helpful to work your way through this prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And I think what the last two verses after the Lord's Prayer remind us of is that forgiven people ultimately forgive people. 
that forgiveness and forgiving others are tethered to us being forgiven and us forgiving other people are tethered together. Forgiven people forgive people. And this daily prayer reminds us of that core reality. And that leads then to the last petition or petitions in verse 13. We are to pray with watchful eyes. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. God is the God who rules over all things, including the evil one and his minions. We see this in the book of Job, for instance. Job has to get permission from God to do his bidding. And so though there's tension here as to why Jesus would ask us to pray, lead us not in temptation, what it reminds us of is that God is the one who rules over all things, including evil. God does not tempt towards evil, and God never does evil. Yet God is the one who rules over all things, including evil. And we see that dynamic played out in Job, that, Job has, that Satan has to ask even for permission to test Job. And so what this prayer gives us is a battle plan, if you will, a proactive and a reactive battle plan to temptation and evil. We're to pray proactively that we would not be led into temptation, but when temptation or evil come, we're to pray reactively that God would deliver us from it. And uh, J.I. Packer has a really helpful summary of this passage and the dynamics in this passage. And he says, the conclusion of the matter is this. For good and necessary reasons connected with our Christian growth, we shall not be spared all temptation. But if we ask to be spared and watch and pray against Satan's attempts to exploit situations for our downfall, we shall be tempted less than we might have been. And we'll find ourselves able to cope with temptation when it comes. So do not be unrealistic in not budgeting for temptation, nor foolhardy enough to court it. But when it comes, do not doubt God's power to deliver from the evil it brings and to keep you from falling as you pick your way through it. When you are conscious of temptation, pray, lead us not into temptation. And when you are conscious of it, pray, deliver us from evil and you will live. A game plan for a spiritual battle. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, shortly after college, I had the opportunity to spend a summer in South Africa uh, working with a church planner uh, there. And um, as, during the summer, the group that I was with took me to a game park, which a game park is basically a zoo with no cages. Uh, all the animals are wild, and you just kind of drive through this big open field. And as we're driving, thankfully we were in this enclosed car, um, but we were driving along, and we had just seen some lion, and uh, they looked pretty hungry, and we kept driving, and then we stopped just a couple minutes later, and we get out, and people are, like, grilling hot dogs and hamburgers, <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, this isn't a great idea. It was one of the few times in life I was happy to skip a meal. <laughs> like, this doesn't make the most sense. But you think to yourself, like, uh, you get on the evening news, and you hear a report that uh, there's a stray lion out in your neighborhood, you're probably not going to go play in the yard uh, that night. Say, I'm gonna, I'll take a pass. But you think about Scripture's descriptions uh, of the evil one. How is the evil one described? A roaring lion seeking to devour its prey. And, and so Jesus has given us here a, a model, a template prayer for overcoming the, the workings of this roaring lion seeking to devour its prey. Uh, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. The evil one is strong, but we have... A mighty God who looks to protect us and deliver us from all evil. The Lord's Prayer then ends with a doxology, which most likely was not original to the text, but was added for liturgical purposes. And it goes, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so the prayer, if the liturgical doxology is added, ends where it begins, with praise of God, which is really the beginning and the end of prayer.
God is the center of true prayer. He is the one who is deserving of all of our praise. And we began this morning thinking about master class. If we were to take a class from anyone in the world, we would take it from. And uh, Jesus has taught us how to pray. And so we should be a people who pray. I, um, I attended a funeral not too long ago, some time ago, that at the conclusion at the gravesite, we, we prayed and recited uh, the Lord's Prayer. And it was a beautiful affirmation to me of the, the, the wonder of these words, but how these words are for more than praying. These words are also for living well. And in many respects, these words are also for dying well. Uh, these words provide a template for praying well, uh, living well, and dying well. And so Jesus has given us words to pray. And so we should be a people who pray. Amen?